Well, Happy New Year, everyone. I pray that you are thrilled to be in the house of the Lord, starting your time with him and worshiping together as the body of Christ. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 3. If you've noticed in the prayer guide, each week there is a different verse that we are emphasizing. And we're focusing on that verse for seven days, and then we'll move on to another verse. And the first verse is from the book of Joshua. I'll preach each week over these three weeks about that particular verse and its theme and how it, it becomes engaged in our lives, so to speak. Hey, by the way, um, I wanted to say when just became a United States citizen just about a couple of weeks ago. And so congratulations to Nguyen. So we're so thrilled for him. Uh, he was so excited a couple of weeks ago when he told me that uh, he had just become a United States citizen, and we are as well. Um, we believe, we believe that God has a purpose and a destiny for each individual as well as for us as a corporate body. Over the 20 years that fullness has been in existence, if there's been one message I think I've preached over and over and over and over and over again, it's this, that you were not created purposeless, but that God has created you with a destiny in mind. And the only way that your destiny can be fulfilled is through Jesus Christ. Have you heard that message uh, a lot? Uh, over the years. And I believe that we as a body, as a congregation, we also have a destiny in him together. The question is, how do we walk into, so to speak, our destiny? How do we accomplish what we were created for, what God made us for? How do we become all that we're supposed to become? How do we join in with God with his purposes, and with his plan on this earth. Wouldn't you rather, uh, I know this is a silly kind of question, but wouldn't you rather be doing what God has created and made you and redeemed you to do and to be than to feel like you're always falling short, always kind of wandering through, always just not quite making it? Well, part of that is the idea that, <clears throat> that there must be a job I must be doing in order to accomplish them. There must be money that I should be making. There must be some name recognition that I should have uh, to be doing that. But I believe it's much really bigger than that. There is a, an idea that we as followers of Jesus Christ are a part of his kingdom plan, kingdom purpose accomplishing each and every moment what he has made and created for us to be and to do. There's an account in the Old Testament here in the book of Joshua that we're going to focus on where the people of God stand on the brink of entering into their destiny as a people. They've, they've, they're about to come into it. And there are some things that happen, some accounts that happen in Joshua 3 through Joshua 6 that I want to just summarize and use as examples for us about how we can walk into our destiny. Now, obviously, there are four chapters, 3, 4, 5, and 6 here that I don't have time to read, so I'm going to summarize the story for you. 
pull out a couple of verses, but look at three different accounts and how these different accounts relate to us as followers of Jesus Christ and will help us accomplish our plan, uh, God's plan and his destiny for each and every one of us. You with me? So we're gonna, it's going to be kind of fast-moving, hopefully, uh, the, to give you the account. And if you don't have all the background, that's okay. Uh, I think these stories are very, very familiar. Uh, just to back up just a little bit, the nation of Israel was not a nation when they went down into Egypt. When a famine occurred, and as a result of Joseph and all that his family he brought down, there, there were a bunch of them, but they were not a nation. They spent 400 years in Egypt in captivity, uh, eventually as slaves. And when Moses comes down and by the power of God delivers them out of Egypt, they are a nation. There's a million, several million of them, uh, of the Israelites before they come out. And they come out through the hand of God. He delivers them. They go through the wilderness. They come up to the, to the brink of getting their destiny And as a result of their rebellion, their lack of faith in God, they're turned back into the desert. They wander in the desert for 40 years until the generation before dies out. All those under the age of 20, excuse me, all those over the age of 20 have to die before they can go into the land of promise, which is a bunch of people. And so for 40 years, they're in the desert. Now they come back to the point they were where they stand on the brink of going into the land that God has for them, this land known as Canaan. Their old leader, Moses, has passed away. Joshua is now leading the people, and they stand, as the old hymn says, they stand on Jordan's stormy banks and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. The problem with that hymn, just to let you know, is that um, the hymn is really referring to Canaan as heaven. But Canaan is not heaven. Canaan is the land of promise, the land of destiny that God has for you from the moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ and throughout eternity. So my contention is that Canaan is the land that God has for us even now as spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ. We should be walking in his promises, his plans, his destiny for each and every one of us. He is the one that makes it happen. But at some point, we have to do something. We got to join in with him in order to see his might and power released in our lives so that we can walk fully in the destiny that he has for us. If we never receive and walk by faith, we won't see it happen. How do we prepare ourselves, though, to move out in faith? How do we get ready to move in faith? And how do we, in turn, then step out in faith when that moment comes? This is what this time of fasting and prayer really is all about. Getting prepared to join in with God as he moves. So that when the wave of God comes, we're ready to join in with that wave. The key verse here is in Joshua 3, 5, the one we've been focusing on already this week, where Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. To consecrate means to 
set something apart as sacred or holy or for a special purpose. And so Joshua was saying to the people, hey, get ready. Set yourselves apart for God's purpose that he's going to do in the days ahead. And there are three points I want us to see. And with each point, there's a story from the nation of Israel that I'm going to summarize that I think will bring to light how we today can move with God and achieve our destiny. The first point is this. There are obstacles to be overcome. There are obstacles to be overcome. In Joshua 3 and Joshua 4, they stand on one side of the Jordan River and the land is on the other side. There is an obstacle. There is a river between them and the land of promise. And in Joshua 3 and Joshua 4, you see that when they come up to this river, it is not just an obstacle, it is a major obstacle. You've got several million people on one side of a river and a river. And incredibly, God brings them to cross this river when it's at flood stage. Uh, And not only that, but if you remember, the Jordan River flows south and it dumps into the Dead Sea. The place they're going across is closer to the Dead Sea end than the Sea of Galilee end. They're at the southern point so that the water in flood stage has been gathering. And according to uh, what most uh, geologists, biblical geologists believe, the water is rushing at about 40 feet. It's dropping at about 40 feet per mile. And it's anywhere from 200 feet wide to a mile wide where they're planning on crossing. So this is not just some peaceful little lazy river that a lot of people have to go through to get wet. It is a, it's a raging torrent that's very wide. So they stand on one side and they look over at the other side saying, how in the world are we going to get from here to there? And why does God lead them to cross the river at the worst possible point, at the worst possible time? God wants them to know. I have... I think the answer here is that God wants them to know that they're going to enter the land, they're going to take the land, they're going to keep the land only by his might and his power. It says in the psalm, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. God tells the people, this is a great story as every one of these is really, God says to the people basically this, look, have the priest pick up the Ark of the Covenant, and then carry it out into the river, and then you guys cross over. So you can imagine the priests, they pick up the Ark. They're right on the edge of this raging torrent of a river, and it's not backed up. It's not dry. The, 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 the account says that as they stepped into the water, that it's at that point the river dried up. Do you get the humor of this? Can you imagine being the first priest? Wow, if Joshua is wrong, this is going to be a huge mess. Um, And the first priests are the ones who have to step out in faith into the river. And it's that point that the river, this flooding, raging river, dries up. The priests walk in and carry the Ark of the Covenant and stand in the middle of the river. And the whole nation passes by as the priests stand there with the Ark of the Covenant, 
in the middle. Now, what does the Ark of the Covenant represent? The presence of God. The presence of God goes before the people in the middle of the obstacle. The people walk through on a dry land, keeping their eyes focused on the presence of God. The central feature of this whole story is the Ark of the Covenant. Seventeen times the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in chapters 3 and 4. The presence of God is the central theme. If, if you are going to overcome the obstacles of your life that stare you in the face, how are you going to see that accomplished? Well, I believe you're going to see it accomplished by not focusing on the obstacle. They could have stood there and just watched the river and said, how in the world are we going to get through this river? But it was the presence of God that delivered them. And as they focused on the presence of God, then they were able to move through the obstacle that was in their way in order to get to the other side. You know, there, there's this idea, this truth in the New Testament that, that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the presence of God, has, has conquered the ultimate obstacle of our lives, death, and stands in between, because of his death, stands in between us and being in the presence of God, the river of death has been breached because of the death of Jesus Christ, the ultimate obstacle. And so we need to keep our eyes fixed on, fixed on Jesus Christ. I, I know there are many, many of you, maybe all of us, that have obstacles staring us in the face. They stand between us and really what we think or we maybe sensing from God is the future and destiny of our lives. What is it you're focused on right now? Are you focused on the presence of God or are you focused on the obstacle itself? I believe one of the truths of this story is that we have to, have to focus on God and his presence if we're going to accomplish what he wants us to do. I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do I live this life of overcoming obstacles? I live it by the, by the power of God that lives within me because of the death of Jesus Christ. We may be facing what looks like, from our perspective, a river that's raging that is just too wide to cross. Impossible circumstances or situations, things that we cannot see overcome on our own. Habits, thoughts, relationships, health issues, finances, but... We have to keep our eyes fixed upon him. We, we have to walk in the truth that God is for us. We can overcome because Christ overcame. And in truth, we are now more than overcomers. We are more than conquerors in him because of what he's done. I know that for each and every one of us, you've got some obstacles to overcome. 
but let's keep our eyes fixed upon him. Second point is this. There are some issues to be dealt with. There's some issues to be dealt with, and you can find this in uh, Joshua chapter 5. And this is an interesting account of the consecration of the people. And I'll try and be as uh, delicate in this story as I can, but just go with me. Um, The covenantal sign of the Old Testament people of being followers of God was the external act of circumcision. And the promise with Abraham was that all males were to be circumcised. It's an unusual kind of covenantal agreement. It's an exterior sign, but it's hidden at the same time. You you with me so far? Just nod your head. I'll keep going if you want. But um, it's just an unusual sign. But what has happened is that when they came out of Egypt, all the males had been circumcised. When they got into the desert and the rebellion occurred, all the people, all the men that were over the age of 20 had died. The men that were 0 to 20, I'm not telling this very well, I don't think, but see if you can hang with me. The guys that were 0 to 20 at the time of the rebellion had been circumcised. All the other males that had been born in the last 40 years, none of them had been circumcised at God's command because of their rebellion. All the people born in the desert had not, you're with me, had not been circumcised. So God says to Joshua, get a sharp knife. Uh, That's that's what he tells him in chapter 5. Get a sharp knife and circumcise all the males who are uncircumcised. Uh, Estimates are there were 650,000 men. Get a really sharp knife. God consecrates the people. The, the, the idea of circumcision is the removal of flesh. And God's, God's command really is there's some issues that need to be dealt with, that need to be taken care of before you go into the land of promise. By the way, Passover, you remember the celebration of Passover which happened in Egypt where the death angel passed over the firstborn, which is going to become the, the meal that celebrates their deliverance from captivity. They practiced it, obviously, in Egypt the first time. Then when they got to Mount Sinai, they practiced a Passover celebration at the giving of the Ten Commandments. But then, while they were in rebellion in the desert, God had commanded them, do not celebrate Passover because the command was, No uncircumcised male can participate in the Passover celebration. So now they have, they cross the river. They have this time of circumcision where they consecrate the men, get ready to take the land. Now they celebrate Passover for the only third time in their history. And when they finish Passover, the manna stops. When they celebrate God's deliverance, God's promise. And remember, manna, I know there's a lot of background I'm giving as the story goes along. Manna is the food that fed them in the wilderness. Uh, The symbolism here is is really incredible, if you think about it. They had these issues to be dealt with, uh, circumcision. They then celebrate God's deliverance, and the wilderness food stops because now they don't need it anymore. 
they are going to dwell upon God's promised provision, the land, for their lives. Well, what does this say to us? Um, In Colossians, for one thing, it says, In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised, and this goes for males and females in this case, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in what? Baptism. This is one of the reasons we believe baptism is so very important. We believe baptism is important because it's an external sign of an inward reality that has occurred when you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. By the way, it's the reason we also contend that, that baptism should follow conversion because the sinful nature has not been dealt with. The circumcision of the heart has not occurred prior to faith in Jesus Christ. And baptism then is a sign of what God has done in our hearts as a result. It's one of the reasons we don't baptize infants because we don't believe at that point their sin nature has been dealt with. Uh, only through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ can that, can that occur. Now, by the way, I know there's a big controversy in the church over infant baptism because some would say, well, he's, he's equating circumcision, which was done to infants, to baptism, which is done to followers of Jesus Christ. True. But he's saying that this circumcision only occurs when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not the point of the whole thing. The point of this point, so to speak, is that we each have issues of the flesh that need to be dealt with in our lives. When we come to know Jesus Christ, there is a death or a putting away of these fleshly issues. But at the same time, we pick up the dirt of the world all the time. Just living in Birmingham, Alabama, in the 21st century, going out into the world and having a job or going to school or, my goodness, turning on television, you're going to pick up the dirt of the world. And what we need to know is that God is, is in the constant position of taking a sharp knife to the flesh of our lives and removing the things that are issues or sin problems in our lives. We need, we need to celebrate and not be afraid of the great physician taking the sharp knife of his truth to our hearts and our lives. We need to not be afraid of the removal of the things, the issues that need to be dealt with. This is really what I believe happens during a time of fasting and prayer. Whenever I fast, it's as if the the heat of God's truth is applied to my life. And suddenly, the things that I didn't even know were there, the impurities, as it were, float to the surface and become readily apparent to me and usually to those close by me. Uh, You know, the stuff of my life comes to the surface and it's right there so that God can really deal with it. Now, I have the choice of not participating or not putting myself in a position or not even trying to hear from God. But I want to encourage you, if you're going to walk into the destiny that God has for you, find a way to participate with him. 
you know, it's, it's not me that cleanses me. It's not me that takes a sharp knife to myself. It is God. But I put myself in a position where God can do that. And that's what fasting and prayer really does. It, it's, it's, as Richard Foster says, it's putting ourselves on the precipice of life where God can is in a position to deal with us as he wants to deal with us. We, we've all got issues. You know, just look to your right and your left, and you know what you'll see? A person with issues. I mean, we've all got them. I mean, it's all, we all have, I know it's hard to believe your mom or dad may have an issue, but they do. Uh, it may be hard to believe that the people you know are really struggling with stuff, but they, but they are. It's nothing to be condemned about. Rather, it's something to be dealt with. To say, I want and I want to see God move in my life in a way that I'll powerfully be transformed. One of the truths of God's word is this. If you want to walk into your destiny where he thinks he has for us, You've got to overcome these obstacles and you've got to see the issues of your life dealt with. Does that mean you're going to be perfect? Hello? No. None of us is or are or will be this side of heaven. But it means that we are dealing with and allowing God to transform our lives and our hearts. Third point, final one. There are victories to be won. There are victories to be won. This is the really familiar account of the taking of the city of Jericho. And these three events happen right in succession. Crossing the Jordan River, um, the, the consecration of all the males, and the Passover celebration. And then they enter the battle. It, do you not see this ironic? They've crossed a major obstacle. They've dealt with the issues. And now what do they get to see in front of them in this land of promise? Warfare. Battle. They have to take the land by the power of God. And the first city that they come to is not an insignificant city. It is a city of Jericho. Now, Jericho is not that big of a city. It probably covers 8 to 10 acres. By the way, I think our church property sits on about four acres. So if you double just the size of the church property, that's really the physical location of Jericho. It's not a big, big place. But it's, it's surrounded by walls that are about 10 feet thick and 30 feet high. So it's a very difficult and challenging. The walls were so thick that people literally built their houses into them. Hence the whole story of Rahab. If you remember Rahab, her house was in the city wall. That's how big the walls were. And it is, it is the center of Canaanite pagan worship. And so you've got this heavily fortress city um, that is a center and seen as the center of their religious thought and activity. It's seen as not being able to be taken. And so you have this battle that's about to take place that that happens between the God of the nation of Israel and the God, so to speak, of the land, which God is greater? Whose God is greater? Well, since only one God really exists, then 
I'm going with the one that exists versus the kingdom of darkness, which is there but is not a god. On the day before, shortly before the battle, Joshua is out surveying the city of Jericho, probably trying to think, how in the world are we going to do this? And he meets a guy with a sword drawn. And Joshua goes up to the guy and says, hey, are you for us or are you against us? Basically, whose, whose side are you on? To which the guy with the sword says, I'm not on your side or the other side. I am the commander of the Lord's hosts. I, I love this story because we try to think, is God on our side or on the other side? And what this story says is, it's not which side God is on, it's which side we're on. Or we on God's side are not God's side. God is God. He is his own side. Right? And so the guy basically, if you look at the story, Joshua is saying, hey, brother, are you for us or are you against us? And the angel of the Lord says, dude, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, are you on my side? Because where I'm going, victory is going to be won. And Joshua has this, take off your shoes, this is holy ground kind of experience, where he says, okay, I'm with you, tell me what to do. And you know the instructions that he gets, hey, take the whole nation, march around one, the city one time a day for six days, on the seventh day, march around seven times, have the priests blow their trumpets, shout, uh, God has given us the city, and then just take it. All right, that's the plan. Here we go, let's go take, let's go take the city. You know, they do. Walls fall down, they rush in, kill everybody, everything, take the whole city. The truth here is, as I see it from our perspective, is that we are in a war. We are in a battle. Once we become citizens of the kingdom of God, whether we want to be or whether we acknowledge it or not, we are all in. How many, how many people of the nation, who did, who did he tell? I'm not asking this question very well, other than I'm stuttering a little bit. Is who marched around the city? Everybody. Everybody marched around. The, they took everybody to march around. Who's in the battle? Everybody. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're, you're in the battle whether you want to be or not. You know, there's that old spiritual that says Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle. Actually, again, I, I hate to keep killing songs. Um, I know I appear like a, a killjoy, but actually Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. I don't really call walking around walls really fighting the battle. Who fought the battle of Jericho? God did. But Joshua participated with God and the commander of the Lord's host by doing what he's supposed to be doing. And as a result, God gives them the victory. I mean, the truth is, according to 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power, the victory is from God and not from us. Listen, as much as we would like to say the victory is ours, the victory is really God's. We're in a battle, but 
It's through his might, his power, that the victory is accomplished. We need, we need to have our eyes open to see the spiritual realities around us. When Joshua was out before the city of Jericho that night before, he suddenly had his eyes opened when he saw the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. He suddenly saw something he had not seen before, which is that God is really God. And a more power, I mean, he just crossed the whole river. I mean, a lot had happened to make Joshua think. But now his eyes are open to the spiritual battle around him. We too need to have our eyes opened to see what's going on. Some of us are just continually going through life blind. In Ephesians, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He prays for three things. The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of his saints, and his incomparably great, what? Power for us who believe. Power. We have power. What kind of power? That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Open your eyes to the power of God, the resurrection power of God, the ascension power of God. And he finally says, and the dominion power of God. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We, we have unbelievable power available to us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that seats him at the right hand of God the Father, the same power that gave him dominion over everything he's given to the church. Do you think that we may be underestimating the power of God that is available to us who believe? The anointing, the strength, the power comes from God. But by faith, it is appropriated in our lives. Hebrews 11.30 says this. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, by faith, we see the power of God at work in our lives. We are we're in a battle. We are in a war, whether we want to be, want to be or not. During the Civil War, or being from the South, as some still say, the War of Northern Aggression, um, the war between the states, the Civil War, there was a Union soldier from Ohio who was shot in the arm during the Battle of Shiloh. His captain saw he was wounded and barked out an order, Give me your gun, private, and get to the rear. The private handed over his rifle and ran toward the north, seeking safety. But after covering two or three hundred yards, he came upon another skirmish. Then he ran to the east and into another part of the battle. Then he ran to the west and he encountered fighting there. Finally, he ran back to the front line shouting, Give me back my gun, Captain. There ain't no rear to this battle. 
We're in that kind of war. We're in that kind of battle. There is no place to check out. There's no place to not be engaged. There's no place to not be involved. But by faith, we can see the power of God at work in our lives and in the battle to see the victory accomplished. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The truth here, I hope the Spirit of God will allow each and every one of us to catch it at this moment. We've got, all of us, obstacles standing in our way. We all have issues to be dealt with. We all have victories that need to be won. The question is, are we going to still be on this side of the river waiting? Or, by the power of God that is available already to us, are we going to step out in faith and see the the obstacles overcome? Are we going to step out to a place that we say we want the issues of our life dealt with? Are we going to step out and march around a city appearing to be possibly quite stupid and obey God and see the victory accomplished? At every step of the way, it was the power of God It was the presence of God that accomplished what needed to be accomplished. But the people had to join in with it. The question, again, I think for us is, are we going to put ourselves in a position where God can move and do what he wants to do in us individually and in us corporately as well today? Today, I think, is one of those standing on the edge of the river kind of days where we have a choice. Each and every one of us is faced with a choice about what we'll do in the coming year. I want to encourage you to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look at him. Allow his power to be working in your life. Stand up with me if you would. I would like to sing that chorus over us. Let me pray for you. And I want to sing this chorus over you of that great hymn. Father, we thank you right now. We ask, Lord, that you would, just by your grace and by your power, lead us forward. Lord, this morning, I ask that you would give us grace.
Give us truth. Give us courage. ask the ministry teams if they would to come forward if you're here today and you know that you have obstacles in your life that need to be overcome if you have issues that need to be dealt with victories that need to be won and you would like someone to pray with you this morning to see that accomplished in your life then just allow one of these teams to pray with you and see that accomplished this morning Love.